Hi, this is Lawrence Gowan of Sticks, and you are listening to and watching the Fab Four Free For All. And welcome to a very special edition of the Fab Four Free For All, uh, the Beatles podcast, um, where we talk Beatles and related. And yes, um, I am solo today, Mitch Axelrod, your host. Tony and Rob couldn't make it. Uh, and they are very upset they couldn't because, as I said, we have a very special episode. You might notice the gentleman on my, I guess, right or left, whichever way you're looking. Uh, I hate Zoom. But in any case, uh, we are very, very honored uh, and happy to have with us Lawrence Gowan. He is the one of the lead singers of the band Sticks and a uh, and a uh, had a big solo, has a big solo career in his own right. Um some of the some of my favorite songs are on the anim, on Strange Animals album, but we'll get into that as well because that's Beatle related too. Yeah. So welcome to the show, Lawrence. Well, wonderful to be here. Thank you very much, Mitch. Well, I'm, uh, my my pleasure. I just uh, a Beatle centric show. I think is a great is a great idea. I, I notice uh, now. Are those are those some of the remastered ones? I, I know I, they recently remastered those again. I do believe. Yeah, yeah. The, they remixed as well. Remixed, yeah. Remixed, yeah. And as a matter of fact, one of the songs we'll be talking about, "I Am the Walrus." Uh, I don't know if yeah. you've heard the new remixes. Uh, they they remix the ending, and it's totally different. So, uh, really, you should, go, you should go listen to it on on Spotify or YouTube. Yeah, uh, Giles Martin, George's son, uh, took some liberties. Some people love it, some people hate it, but uh, you know, you should listen to it, and uh, I'd love to get your feelings on it. Um, but anyway, yeah, these these are just back. I I just have them in the back. I made them up myself because we were doing shows on the Red and Blue albums a couple of months ago, and uh, it's the only place my wife lets me hang up stuff because it's uh, a lot of times it's um, she always says it's me or the Beatles, and quite frankly, <laughs> she doesn't like it when I hesitate because <laughs> uh, I think a little bit and I mean sometimes you know the Beatles are pretty cool. Um, anyway, <laughs> so. Uh, you know, I, I got to admit, I wasn't, I grew up in the 70s and the 80s. I wasn't a big Sticks fan. Uh, I, I did love the hits. And then I saw you guys about five years ago, you know, with with another band. I forgot who it was. Maybe it was Foreigner. I don't even remember. You were in Jones Beach. And you guys blew me away. I mean, you know how there's sycophants? I became yeah. a Sticks-a-fan. Um, <laughs> it was... No, but well, it depends on how how far you go there. But quite frankly, you guys just were unbelievable. You, I mean, I went back and started listening. And then the one show that got me was the uh, Contemporary Youth Orchestra of Cleveland. Uh, yeah. Oh, and we'll get into that because there's other sure. Beatles stuff there. But wow. I mean, if anybody has a chance to go look at it on YouTube, buy the DVD, the CD, please do. that. That show just... I mean, cemented it for me. And now when you guys announced that you'd be in my backyard in, in Westbury, New York, <laughs> I, I actually think I got a little moist. I, I, I think so. But <laughs> but uh, hopefully I'll, I'll see you that night in March. But the uh, so let me let me just take you back a little bit. Because uh, yeah. it was a Beatles show. I got to take yeah. you back when you were like seven. Uh, uh, as, of this, as of this taping, it's February 2nd. And uh, it's a week away from the date that would be iconic in music history, February 9th, 1964. I know you were affected by it. I was very affected by that day. In fact, that's uh, as were millions of musicians around the world. So it's not yes. it's a particularly original story, but I'll give you my camera angle on that on that sure. uh, on that night on Sunday, February the 9th of 1964. <laughs> Yeah. So, as you know, the Ed Sullivan show was pretty much the, well, it was the, the great, the, the high, I'm sure it was the highest rated variety show. And it might have been the only variety show that was on uh, network television, yep. uh, on CBS on Sunday nights. And, and we watched it. I remember starting to watch it probably when I was four or five years of age. But when I was seven, um, this is, the, I'm, actually, I'm going to go back a tiny little bit. My birthday is November 22nd. And I turned seven on uh, November 22nd, 1963, which was, wow. of course, a, a rather uh, 
uh, uh, infamous day uh, because uh, John F. Kennedy was assassinated on that day. So my birthday was a little bit mired by global events. Yeah. Just a couple of months later, I remember, this is my biggest part of the the memory of it. I remember my mom saying to me, um, you know, because I was born in Glasgow and we were growing up in Toronto, but my mom was, of course, Scottish. My dad was uh, Irish. And uh, my mom said, oh, uh, Auntie May called, there's going to be a group from Liverpool on, uh, on Ed Sullivan tonight. And Liverpool's very close to Glasgow. Apparently, they're very, very popular in in, uh, in England. And, and uh, she said, we really have to watch it. I told her we watch it anyway. So, yeah. So I said, oh, okay, good. You know, feigning half interest. You know, I know Ed Sullivan comes on at 8 o'clock on a Sunday night. And, you know, we're going to see a group from Liverpool. And uh, <laughs> I remember perfectly, you know, and we we prior to coming on the air, you asked me if I was still a Maple Leaf fan, and yes, up until up until the hour of about eight o'clock on that Sunday night, February nine, I was thinking, yeah, I'm going to be a Maple Leaf one day. It's not it's not a <laughs> what my what my future is going to be. I wish I had my iPad here because there's the old photo of me in my Leaf outfit and white skates standing on the in the frozen <laughs> driveway, and. Uh, but suddenly, eight o'clock comes, and uh, Ed Sullivan says, "Here they are from Liverpool, England, the Beatles." Okay, words to that effect, and immediately they go into all my love, right? So close your eyes and uh, okay. It wasn't thirty seconds into that song because I didn't know what, what a rock band was or anything. I'm seven years old, and ah. Uh, about 30 seconds into that song, I remember my dad, who was a really good musician, and eventually became a massive Beatles fan and would play Beatles songs on, on the piano. Um, but my dad was taken aback because he couldn't figure out, and he went, you know, what the hell is this? <laughs> I remember the words, said that. <laughs> words coming out of his mouth. And I, it was the first time I felt like yeah, never mind what this is. This is not for you. This is this is what I want. Whatever's going on here is what I want in my life. And as I say, millions of musicians, of future musicians, oh sure, felt the same lightning bolt happen. Okay, so so that's where the story d- diverts into into being very common. But at that moment, I remember it was probably the first time that I ever had an opposing view to my dad, who knew everything about the universe. And uh, by the end of the show, I think he was a fan, by the way. But uh, <laughs> but at first, it was just it was just not what was expected, you know. Or you're, you know, we yeah. we'd been seeing Frank Sinatra, or where, you know, like or Tony oh, Bennett, or you know, the the or, or even Elvis, you know, on on that show before, I suppose. So um, that's that's the big moment there. Now, I'll I'll tie this into where where I think we're going to go next, or perhaps okay. Beatles came to America on February the 7th, 1964. On February the 7th, 1984, 20 years later, I walked into Ringo's home, Tittenhurst Park, which was John Lennon's home uh, where he made Imagine prior to Ringo living there. This is 1984, obviously. And Ringo met me at the door and shook my hand and basically said, well, good luck with the record and um, welcome to Tittenhurst Park. So... I don't know what the universe holds <laughs> for people and why it why why it dishes these things out in in a certain order, but that is uh, still a great moment in my life. Yeah, it, and and believe me, uh, we dug up some pictures of you geeking out at Tittenhurst. Uh, <laughs> you you know, did. Oh yeah, uh, I already yeah. posted them on our Facebook page. People are loving them, and they'll be in in Good this uh, in the YouTube version of this, but. Yeah, the pictures of you by the door and the pictures of you in the field uh, doing yeah, almost the exact place where the Beatles were on the Hey Jude turned out to be the Hey Jude album. Right, uh, right, right at the door. That, that. Uh, go ahead, go ahead. Finish. No, I was going to say you. You had talked about that door and what was behind it. I feel like I'm, yeah. I'm on. Let's make a deal at the moment. But yeah. uh, what's behind door number one? <laughs> 
Well, behind the, the door that you're referring to, if you have a photo handy, you should probably put it up. This is oh, the door yeah. on the Hey Jude album, the, 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 the four of them. The last photo session the Beatles ever had ensemble. You are too. a geek. And um, so, I, of course, <laughs> look at me. <laughs> look at me, don't worry. <laughs> uh, so uh, in, in a second, I'm going to reveal where, where I am right now, and then we're going to, and you're going to see just how it ties into to us chatting. Uh, I think I know where that's going. Yeah, okay. So um, so behind that door is, uh, well, they, we were calling it the temple. We don't know what it really was, I guess, because it was probably built in the 1800s. So, you right. know, and uh, it's a separate building, about maybe 100 yards from the main studio, something like that, down a, a, a very uh, whimsical path called the Wibbly Wobbly Way. I mean, how British is that? Where the, exactly. a, winding, a winding path of brick, you know, um, uh, walls, you know, as you're walking along, so a very Alice in Wonderland, sure. the Wibbly Wobbly Way, and it led to that spot. And we were allowed to use the room because it had a fantastic, it was great just for drums, because it had a fantastic uh, built-in reverb to it, right? It just, was, just sounded great, sounded kind of like the drum sound of the 80s, which was Jerry Murata's sound. He was the drummer on Strange yep. Animal. And uh, Jerry Murata, uh, Phil Collins, you know, that that gated kind of room sound that that, that was so popular in the, in the 1980s, still one of the greatest drum sounds ever. Yeah, that U-Pageant oh. production. That's right. That's right. So so that we could, David Tickle was the was the producer of, of Strange Animal, and he, he just, he knew exactly what the 1980s should sound like. He's just, <laughs> he just he had that locked in. And uh, so we, we were setting up Jerry's drums in there and i just you couldn't help but notice but there were a couple of large racks racks and racks of, of clothing and which i recognized to be ringo's uh, uh, beetle outfits and i mean i saw gray the gray suits with no the collarless suits, collarless suits yeah. I, saw, I saw it if i recollect correctly there were two or three renditions of the sergeant pepper outfit yes. um uh and these things were not like carefully preserved the way that they've become such museum pieces now. In fact, in fact, back then he was Ringo. The little bit that I got to know of him, he was very much in, in, a man in his forties, so a very young man, um, who was fighting against wanting being you know, being relegated as a museum piece. He wanted to still be a musician and, and do creative things, and he, which he had done already, but. Um, I, 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 it was just before he started the All Star Band and really found his wheels again. As, as oh yeah, me. and so it was during that period. And uh, anyway, I saw all these Beatle outfits uh, that, that that he'd worn crammed onto the onto these um, uh, you know the long pole hangers that do, you know yeah, you sure. dry, clean, dry cleaners or something like that. Yep, just crammed on there, uh, you know, being kept but not being kept as if they were like relics in any in any sense of the word and i remember after we got the drums all together because you're focusing on the album you're not thinking about that really he came in one day uh he comes he came into the studio every two or three days just quick hello and an encouraging word and it's fantastic and uh he had a, an assistant named mike o'donnell and he you know he said yeah, how's it you know he, ringo asked how's the uh they all called him Richie at home, but I, yeah, I called, I called him Mister Star, and <laughs> and uh, he, he um, where was he? Yeah, I, I asked him. I, he said, you know, sound sounding okay out there in the temple. I think he referred to it as the temple. I said, it's great. I said, saw a bunch of your old stuff. I said, do you still have that drum head? Oh. <laughs> that drum head, right? And he turned to Mike. He said, do you know where it is? That's what, I'm serious. He didn't really even have a, he, he couldn't. I'm picturing that he's got his, like, this yeah. is how bizarre your mind works. I'm picturing that he's got a setup of the Beatle drum kit, you know, with some lighting on it, you know, like, of course. you know, like, like some, like some holy thing. No, he, it came, it finally came to my mind. He's a musician. And it's just like John Lennon said, they're just, they're just musicians in a band except it's a band that happened to be extremely successful. The biggest band in the world, yeah. Perhaps the most successful um, outfit in the history of show business. So let's put it, let's put them in that category. 
So, but but as a musician, Ringo is a musician, you know, right. and began to see that yeah, when he's at home, he's a musician. Like we're all musicians here, and he's just he just is who he is. But he treats his gear well, but not like they're sacred cows. Well, <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. My point is, I'm gonna I'm gonna get to the point. That's all I right. Say, he asks Mike where the drum head is. Mike goes, uh, "It's in the front. It's in the front uh, closet," and. I said, yeah, you can go get it. And Mike, he said, all right, come here. So I was allowed to walk in, and we're looking in the front closet. Behind the shoes and everything, he pulls out the drum head. Beatles drum head. Not only just that, I've got a great photo of myself holding it. I um, do too. <laughs> a good man. We found uh, it. But this was the original, original, because as I was able to look at it up close, and I wish I had Back then, I wish we had iPhones or something that could capture this. Of course. The original logo that they were going to go with, it, now you see, I don't fully recall if it was the one with the little bug ears that came out of yeah. the bee, but it was it was not the Beatles logo, which was basically in in, in black paint, I suppose, the, yeah. the, the one we all know. But, but around that was a, another logo that the guy had penciled in and it obviously erased and gone, no, nah, no, nah, that's not quite it. And oh then my. I decided on So I don't know for sure. I'm going to guess that that's the one that, that we saw on Ed Sullivan that night. But I don't know for sure because being the original, they might have had another one made for their trip to America. I don't know. Um, there were a few but, of the different, you know, for obviously different tours in 65, 6. So there were a bunch of them that were, were made. But still, I mean, any of them is is so iconic and and we do have a picture of you holding holding the drum head up with the drop t and a rickenbacker as well yeah yeah i mean that's, uh, yeah we'll we'll definitely put that stuff but you know what it's funny you say that about the drums because i'm a drummer and you know uh, my drums don't mean anything but ringo's drums are iconic and then in 1970 paul used them on his mccartney album and you see them in his backyard with the snow and i'm thinking oh my god you know the pearl drum the oyster pearl drum set is in the snow and they didn't you know again they you know they weren't the they were the beatles but it's their gear and they're just still using it or they were still using it at that point so kind of wild that they just you know i would still there's still part of me that would probably want to go on that clothing rack and you know Put something on under my clothes and just say, "Oh, I'll be right back." And well, this is the thing, you know. I, I, I I'm not going to say that I wasn't tempted. You know, <laughs> of uh, there's a song on my album called "The Criminal" on that album called "The Criminal Mind," and that's, that's okay. probably somewhere. But honestly, I felt like he's given it's such a it's such a privilege that he's allowing us to use his house, his home yeah. studio. Or I'm I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to. I'm not going to take anything. You know, I've I've robbed several banks in my lifetime. No, you <laughs> can erase that part. No, uh, it's hard. me too. Don't worry. No, so, I, I I I felt like no, it's it's too much of an intrusion to take that. But I did have friends at home who would continually be writing to me, going, "Can you get me this? Can you get me that?" Eventually, the only thing that I that I that I uh, Mike Mike handed me when I was leaving was because um, Ringo would, would was still playing the drums he had a, he had a kit in the studio and actually uh, uh, Zach as well uh, you know, I'd hear him practicing every morning he was only eighteen years old and he was already fantastic. amazing just fantastic and uh, he just knew <laughs> it's in him and uh, uh, I did I did get a busted drumstick. Oh, cool! You still have no it? Drumstick. Oh, yeah. Of course, I have that. Yeah. And uh, so it was. It was just something that was going. I, in fact, it might have been even in the garbage. So, so one one busted drumstick is all I came away with. Uh, that's all right. You know what? That's it's a great story, and quite frankly, it's the memory. The, the the whole thing in here, and the fact that you know, he made such great encouraging comments about the album. I mean, towards the end when we were mixing the record, you know, he'd come in occasionally and say um you know your record's sounding really good you know that kind of thing but he came in right towards the end and he said he said to me you know i've been telling you your record's sounding good it's more than good it's very very good he goes and we dance around to it in the kitchen there was a <laughs> i said what song he goes uh the, the first one the one about the high fashion model magazine 
And this is the fact that that came out of his mouth. I was like, well, that's the opening track on the record. Because if, if he ever gets this record and puts it on, I want him to, you know, for one song or for 10 yeah. seconds, I want him to hear that. So that's the, uh, I've got my piano here at all times, right? So that's how the record opens. That's cosmetics, right? Cosmetics, that's right. People think it's called High Factor. Song, yeah. Listen, I, I, I want to mention that album a, a minute because, sure. first of all, you mentioned The Criminal Mind. Oh, my yeah. God. That song, I, I had never heard it again before five years ago. So yeah. excuse me. Uh, but no, the album went to Platinum, but a, a Criminal Mind was on there. The Cosmetics, is, which is a great song, is on there. And most people don't know that the video for A Criminal Mind was actually the really a pioneer with that cartoony aha yeah. stuff even before Take On Me. Correct. That is correct. It, it came out months, uh, at least half a year before Take On Me. Aha had done a video for that song in 84. I think it came out in September of 84. And then, um, according to, so I don't have this firsthand knowledge, but one of the producers at Much Music, which was a Canadian MTV, yeah, sure. said that the director who wound up directing the the, the famous Take Me On video, because uh, it was a video for Take Me On they did in September of 84, and it, 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 didn't, it, it didn't blow up the charts the way it eventually would. But that director apparently saw the video for A Criminal Mind in January of 85, and went back and used that rotoscope technique to do oh, a nice. second video for for take me on and take me on to, uh, yeah. to on the world. I mean, it, it yeah, was, that was a big video. But, but yeah, it, it, the lineage of it is that a, a criminal mind was uh, a clat two had used uh, rotoscope. I, I was corrected once recently that they had used rotoscope actually in the late seventies. But the idea of thirty five millimeter film then transitioning the character into a cartoon character. Uh, that that's which uh, which uh, is in the take me on video that was originally in the a criminal mind video and and that video won you know uh, the Juno award which is kind of the Canadian equivalent of the of the Grammy award Grammy. it won video for best video of the year it had to beat out Strange Animal which is also on that record but <laughs> so Brian Adams and Corey Hart and Loverboy and you know yeah some sure great, great, some great acts uh, but uh, a criminal mind was the was the was the top one. I, I just, again, even with the, the CYO that you did with the orchestration, the criminal oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, thank you. Uh, that's, yeah, that song just stood me really, really well. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's a fantastic song. And, and you know, Tony Levin was on that album, right? Um, of course. John, and Tony was with John a few times. Did he, did he ever talk about anything he did with John? We did. We did a, a little bit. Uh, you know, we were so focused on what we were doing. I... I I was and am and will forever be such a fan of Tony Levin. So Tony right. Levin, Terry Murata, David Rhodes, those three pivotal musicians from Peter Gabriel's band, they were on Strange Animals, so no wonder it sounds so good. Um, but Tony, uh, yes, I, I I would ask him about the, the double fantasy um, sessions, et cetera, and just how um, how astounded I was that, you know, of all bass players – you know, ever that, that, that John Lennon uh, would would go with Tony is probably the highest praise you can imagine. Yeah, having, any, having anybody sit in that chair after Paul McCartney. So, um, uh, Tony, what, what he, he told me some great things about just how how John would be in the sessions. How you could you could be. Let me see. I don't. Want, I want to get this right. He'd say things like, you know, you might be sitting around, kind of not not really accomplishing much for quite a while then suddenly the muse or whatever the the, the mood would hit john and, he, and he'd go you know all right let's go let's take this one boom and he's, re he's ready to record and tony said to me one time i think i think earl slick went hang on i got a tune and john would go no tune later <laughs> i gotta go to the washroom go to the washroom later right and and they'd, and they'd immediately do it as so a live off the floor so I remember Tony said you you were almost a little bit panicked to leave the control to leave the, uh, the studio floor because that might be the, after a couple of the hours you <laughs> the moment and you missed it. So yeah. uh, uh, that's that's one memory I have of him uh, telling me about the making of that record, and you know. But then I, I also had at that point I wanted to know about you know recording family snapshot and songs like that with Peter Gabriel and of uh, course and, and and most of all just kind of hanging with the guy and getting to know 
you know, you know what he was like. I, I, I'll give I'll give you a really another weird story in my life about Tony Levin. In 1982, my first album had come out and it was not a commercial success. But I I I, w- I went and saw Peter Gabriel Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto, and it was the the tour where they would come down through the <laughs> through the audience holding you know these these beams of light, uh, flashlights, but I mean, yeah, they yeah. were kind of searchlights there. there, And it kind of shine and they converge onto the stage and the crowd would lift them up. And it was, it was such a ceremonial, uh, you know, unique opening to a rock show. And uh, Tony happened to come right by it. So this is before, this is the first time I met him without him knowing. He came right by my seat. I was on the aisle right up towards the front. And he came up, put the light toward like toward me, and I, I actually, you know, people are like, uh, I put my arm around him, and I went, Tony, we're gonna make a record together one day. <laughs> and he puts and the light, shines the light in my face. I told him that right off the bat. I said, you know, I told you we were gonna make a record one day. You probably don't remember. He went, when was that? And I said, yeah, when you were walking to the stage. <laughs> and here we are, two years later. I'm right. in the studio. Them at Ringo's house making this album. So Tony's um, amazing. If, if that's not a charmed existence, I don't know. Oh, you know. believe me, I, I love I, reminiscing about this stuff because it makes me go, God, I've been awfully lucky. Yeah, you know, Tony was part of the uh, the Sir Lou Grade, John's last TV appearance. Um, he was in the band. Uh, um, what do you call it? Yeah, he we, he did. Uh, he was playing bass when John did. Well, John did the obligatory Sir Lou, Sir Lou Grade TV because he. Uh, had a favor for to give him, but whatever. But it was uh Tony was part of the, the band of they, the BOMF. <laughs> I'm not going to say with the band of mother, you know, um, yeah. nice on this show. But uh, yeah. and they wore the two faces, the the masks uh, when they did like slipping inside and then imagine stuff. It was you know, so Tony was was with John. Well, I know the, 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 the band, the band, the band of mothers, fantastic. That's what yeah, doing. exactly. Um, so they, uh, I did not know that though. I did not know that. The, 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 so the, I got to look for that. So there is yeah, that. Yeah, cool. Tony with Tom, John. Well, I got to go look for that. So have you, you seen Get Back? Have you seen Get Back? Of course. I okay. like that came out. <laughs> uh, I watched it probably three full times through over the course of a week. I watched yes. it every night in it. Pretty much, not I can't not in its entirety every night, but I, over the course of about the first two weeks, it was out. I watched it in its entirety every single night, and because I here we go again because I'd actually played on stage with Billy Preston. Billy Preston joined us on stage here uh, 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 for a couple of times, and uh, we did get back, and we did uh, uh, will it go around? Uh, yeah, will it go around in circles? Sure. And and let it be. And so we had two keywords, but Billy Preston was such a you know such an influence on me, such a such a, a fan. But seeing him and get back and what a pivotal role he played on that record. And I'd heard it said before, you know, George Harrison had said, you know, everyone was suddenly on their best behavior, but he just brought a vibe into that room that suddenly all the all their musical things suddenly took to were center stage all of a sudden, you know, yeah. and that, yeah, they were just making a record like four musicians with a guest in there and doing, yeah. So I would, on my second or third time through, <laughs> it's kind of embarrassing, but I would, I'd have it on the screen and I'd have my keyboard on my piano <laughs> and I'd sit there and play along with Billy and along with the, with them as they're, as they're formulating the songs, especially the part where Paul is, you know, writing. Sorry, left-handed. Write and get back. <laughs> you know, yeah, just coming away on the bass, you know, kind of, kind of come up with what it is. Meanwhile, George is over there going, you know, I'm not doing what, just writing a, an absolute yeah. masterpiece that hardly anyone's paying any attention to. You know, I, I found that. Unbelievable. That is truly Peter Jackson, my God, what he captured there, he captured maybe the for the only time ever what it actually is like to be in a band that's trying that's that's struggling away, trying to figure out what are we gonna do next that's any good, right? And it just happens to be the Beatles and they 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 came to the right conclusion. Let's just put oh, it that yeah. way. I don't want to ruin the end of the movie, but it, it comes <laughs> out 
Yeah, I, th- I think people know the end. Uh, something about a rooftop and then, you know. Yeah, there's all that. And uh, my God, there's another thing that's really revealed so well in this, in Get Back, that, that wasn't really um, emotionally brought home in the original Let It Be, is that I didn't know that up until half an hour before they walked onto that roof, they were still debating whether they're going to do it. Okay. Yeah. And then they go out onto the rooftop and they give the performance. Yeah, I know. The performance. It's live. It's freezing. It's January. Do you know what it's like to play in cold weather? Oh, yeah. Weather? It's, not, it's not fun. No. They absolutely not just rise to the occasion, but this the, the, if there's such a thing as magic, you know, between human beings, you can see the, the, the connection and bond that they have through their music is it's miraculous, quite honestly. It really is. And, and it all gels and comes together so, so to speak, so perfectly yeah. um, that you're just left in awe. So that's oh, my yeah. that's that's my review of the of the film. <laughs> well, I want I, I want to bring it back. I give to it you, a actually. thumbs up. <laughs> I give it many thumbs up. Believe me. Um, but I wanted to bring it back to you actually because there was a part in Get Back which you've seen where George is right about lunchtime and he says, "See you around the clubs. I'm leaving." Yeah. And John, whether it's kidding or not, says, "Well, we'll get Clapton." And whether you know, again, whether it was joking or not, who knows? Uh, Clapton obviously laughed when he heard all that, but. Getting it back to you, you you know, you replaced a popular person in in an an iconic band. Right. And how did you adapt in your first few either live and then especially when you made new music in the studio? But was there any trepidation on your part? And, and, you know, were the fans sitting there saying, oh, you know, let's see what he's got. How did did you really adapt to being in sticks? Okay, so. Yeah. For, okay. So first of all, I never, they never gave me the impression and I've never once felt that, that I replaced anyone, you know, it I know. Maybe I, a bad choice of words, but. No, no, no. Oh, no. I realize, but it's, it's an obvious, I, I say it about other bands myself. Yeah. I, okay. same, I, I use the same terminology, but if, but speaking from my own camera angle yet again, it was never put to me that way at all. It was like, would you like to join the band? I'm like, um, think i would could you, you know we need you to sing um grand illusion and come sail away and you know and, and i realized oh those are the songs that uh, dennis DeYoung sings and he was either wrote or was part of the writing of and uh can i sing those songs i'm like give me an hour how <laughs> <I remember laughs> of my bike went to even in 99 it was like january so i can't remember february i think my 99 even even then actually might have been a bit later maybe March. Um, I, I got, I got, I went and got one of their albums at Grand Illusion, came in and realized, oh yeah, I can hit those notes. Okay. So yes. Um, and we, we talked about an hour later and I said, yeah, I can, I can, I can do it. Uh, and it began to dawn on me that and this is, I don't want to sound without any false modesty or without, no, the, without sounding like I'm um, being boastful. I did get the sense that, well, if they were going to choose someone, I think I could be the right person yeah. because I'd had all the experience of playing all the big buildings that they had played, Maple Leaf Gardens and the Montreal Forum and all the big buildings that they had played in Canada, I had played. So I was very, you know, accustomed to playing in front of, you know, 15, 16,000 people and, uh, and which I had done with them two years ago when they opened the new Montreal Forum. So I thought, so there's that. So I know, you know, I know how to, to uh, perform in front of large audiences. Then secondly, I thought, when I met them in 97, I'd never seen Sticks live. Wow. And I was really knocked out with their show. Same yeah. as you were when you saw, when you saw us. I, I just thought this is a really, this band surpasses what, what I had imagined them to be, which was, uh, what, what I always liked about them was they were the only... They were the first progressive rock band. I'm in very into progressive rock, as you can imagine. Yeah, progressive rock band that was not from the UK that that actually were successful, were truly successful, and I think that a lot of that came from the pop sensibility that was in there. And when I began to l- really listen to their records after you know uh, 
you know, I, after I'd seen them live, I went and started to listen to their albums just as a as a, a, a newborn fan who happens to judge a lot of bands by what their uh, what their uh, live performance uh, gives. And I suddenly began listening to their music in a, in a, in a different way. And uh, I began to notice things about it that I really felt musically simpatico with. Let's call it that. Uh, and and I can even I've even done a few breakdowns where I'll tie this to the Beatles for a second. That's all right. They're quite Beatlesque, quite honestly. I mean, there's a chord progression. I don't know if you can hear this. Okay, can you hear this piano? A little bit, yeah. You only need to hear it a little bit. Let's yeah. take for example. I read the news today, oh boy. Right? Yeah. Okay, so we know that song. Well, that kind of chord progression, which has been used by Oasis, by the Beatles, by Queen, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, uh, you know, it's morning, I get up, I die a little. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right. That's very much in, if you think your life is, you know, yeah. confusion, because you never win the game. Just remember that, you know. Yeah. yeah. So I began wow. to notice tie-ins between Beatles songs and and stick songs. And whenever I hear a Beatlesque influence in there, I hear it in Yes, I hear it in Genesis, I hear it in Elton John, I hear it in Queen. When I began to really clock that in the in the Sticks music, I felt a real connection there. Now, the second part of your question is how did I how did I go from being a solo artist where basically I have to answer every every bell that rings <laughs> to being part of a band. Well, that was more of a, that was more of a mountain that I had to climb. <laughs> Not so much of a mountain, but basically that was, that was more of the challenge was that you're in a group setting now and it doesn't come down to one final arbiter as to, as to what, what we're doing. It's, it's, it's a mind, it's a collective mind. And quite honestly, when I watched get back, I could see that these guys uh, had long before mastered that how to how to how to somehow let their brains unite and kind of intertwine in in what it was that they were creating, and they each had these tremendous skills and talents and and songwriting abilities and 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 musical instincts. But individually, as strong as they were, there was something that happened as the, as they collected. So that was what I had to kind of begin to to understand in in being part of Sticks, and I think it took a long time for me, quite honestly, to to really understand that. We we did a really a record I'm still very proud of called Cyclorama, which yeah. was in the five years about four years after I'd been in the band. Remember, I came in right when the music industry was really an upheaval because of the internet and. And, uh, you know, the major labels were kind of scrambling as to what their future significance is going to be. And eventually, though, when that began to settle somewhat, and quite a long time later, we, we started to make really good band records. The Mission, I'm very proud of. From awesome. 20, and definitely Crash of the Crown from 2021, which is, you know, it seems very recent to me. But anyway... That those records are where I th I think I finally got over the hurdle of how to get my brain to cut, to to meld with Tommy Shaw and meld with 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 James Young and with with Willie Vankovich especially who became our producer and then bandmate co writer and with Todd and 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 Ricky and so and Chuck and so that's what I took from that 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 was that was the harder transition the moment we hit the stage together as far as live goes yeah. We 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 have so much fun on stage, basically entertaining ourselves. You each can tell other. them. Yeah, and that's genuine. We really we really do enjoy each other's company, particularly on stage. We enjoy each other's company anyway, for the for the most part. Sometimes we get yeah. on each other's nerves, but in, in real life, but that never happens on stage. It just we just know. First of all, there's there's this joyous atmosphere in the audience, so that's infectious to begin with. But then there's this thing on stage that's just, it's just, a, uh, it's a trip. And you, I, I, def, I, it's funny because I, I defy anyone to come to a stick show and, and walk away and say, I didn't like that. that that's not oh, going to happen. I, I wanted to not like it. I mean, I, I did. And, and yeah. again, the harmonies also remind me of a lot of Beatles. I mean, the sticks had incredible yeah. harmonies, but 
I, you know, I left feeling like I didn't miss anything. I mean, I know you guys don't do certain songs. I didn't miss anything. I, right. I you know, you guys, uh, whether it was Tommy sounding freaking amazing yeah. uh, or you sounding freaking amazing. And, and again, you know, the whole atmosphere of the band, you know, even when Chuck comes on for his one or two or three songs, you just you feel good. Um, yeah. and, and Ricky's amazing. Don't get me wrong. Right. Like Todd's a monster behind the drums. I mean, he, um, he, he, he's a mega musician, Todd. Oh, he, yeah. I've seen he, you know, his okay. master classes. And, and, and again, being a drummer, I just want to quit every time he tunes up, you know. Um, and, and yet he won't let you. I, I, oh, I know. He's, he won't he's, allow that. And he's yeah. such a Ringo fan, too. And, 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 oh, and yeah. they're so different. Okay. So yeah. different, but they're so, they both, you know, it, it's weird because Ringo even in Get Back, was the strength behind the group. You could see it. He played rock solid, never had it, you know, and he waited a lot but for them to come up with stuff. But And when you see you guys live, Todd is just, you know, he, he's he's really like, I'm not going to say the glue because you guys are all such incredible pieces together, but uh, wow. I mean, it, it's, oh, you know, no, I think, no, no way I think, you can say you, you don't like it. I think I think it is fair to say he is the glue. He is the glue in the show. Um, you know, the... Uh, we're all, you know, pretty strong in our instruments, but he really, he holds it where it should be held. Um, yeah. and, and as Ringo did, as you saw in Get Back, I mean, yeah. God, how many hours a day? I mean, there were, no, there were no drum machines that he could go, hang on a sec, I got to go wash them here, play to this beat. That just didn't happen. It, right. it had to be, his, his personality and his his innate sense of how to follow a melody that's that's one of the highest challenges of a drummer is how do i support the melody that's going on here yeah, play to so, the song not get in the way of it but when a moment happens what's the right way to transition because beatles songs are so full of transitions yeah that if they're not glued together properly they would fall apart right so so he there's there's so many ways you can you can dissect Ringo's drumming as to as to what works so well, but Todd is Todd is one of these super musicians that that has the technical skills that are just you know the, the technical skills of a Vinnie Caliuto and a, a Neil Peart and a Phil oh, Collins yeah. that's that's all in Todd right, but the song sensibility of Ringo is also there because he appreciates that and. and you know, and he's also a big fan of Jerry Murata, who yeah. I happen to be a gigantic fan of. So, um, and getting back with with Jerry, I think his brother Rick also played with Paul, uh, and later on, Jerry played with Paul. Jerry, Jerry played, played with Paul as well. Jerry, Jerry is on the um, Press to Play album. Okay. Yes, they did that. I think in '88 or '89. '86, I think. Okay, '86. So, yeah, that was. Um, yeah, that, that was, was actually produced by Padgham, and Bill Collins was actually on uh, a track on that as well. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, that was right when Jerry was, it was in the transition from Peter Gabriel. The next thing he did was Paul McCartney. Then he did the Indigo Girls, and I love those records as well. Oh, so, yeah. Amazing, amazing stuff. Just a couple more things, if you don't mind, if you have a couple minutes for us. Uh, I want to talk about the I Am the Walrus, because... I, I know you did a cover of uh, Eleanor Rigby during the pandemic, um, uh, but the I Am the Walrus, you know, the Beatles had so many songs with orchestration. Was it a band thing that you chose I Am the Walrus to do? Uh, you know, I, I always, I started playing I Am the Walrus back in the 1970s in a band that I had back then, which was a band that was, <laughs> quite honestly, a band that was trying to be, we had a ton of Beatle influence in us, like a, a lot, but we were trying to be like Genesis or Yes or Progressive Rock Band, right in the heart of the punk and the disco era. So we never, <laughs> never got signed to a record deal. But uh, we used to play I'm the Walrus. It was um, just, a, to my mind, it's it's one of the first prog rock songs. I think a lot of bands, a lot of progressive, great progressive rock bands based a lot of their careers upon uh, A Day in the Life, would be one because of the transitions that go in there. Strawberry Fields Forever. But definitely, definitely I Am the Walrus. Such an inventive piece of music uh, that it is that we always used to play it. We played it because we had a Mellotron as well. So we could do this. <laughs> we could get the string sounds in there, the the, the cellos, etc. And we did a really good rendition of it. Uh, and so I'd always played it. 
Uh, and when I when I was touring in England, I was opening for a band called The Stranglers in England in 1997. Uh, 1997, let me think about that. Yeah, late 90, no, 98. I'm sorry. Yeah, in 98, right before I joined Sticks. We, we did a, a full tour of, of the UK. And uh, uh, I would I would play I'm the Walrus in in those shows as well, just to kind of connect my 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 Beatle thing. So when I joined Sticks, I would play it. I'd play it sometimes in sound checks, you know, just you know, just be playing it. And JY, he'd always notice it. And we were playing at the Crossroads Festival in in in, in Dallas. Uh, and he said, Let, let's do a non-blues thing. Let's do something, because everybody's doing blues. Um, let's do something non-blues. He goes, let's work on I Am The Walrus. And I'm like, oh. wow, <laughs> that's weird. And at that show, here's, now how is this for a coincidence? So we played I Am The Walrus. It was, went out live on the radio. And when we finished the song, I turned and Billy Preston was sitting side stage. That's, who I, that's when I first met him. Wow. Big embrace. I said, no idea how happy this makes me. And he loved the rendition. And then suddenly, our manager got called saying, "We're getting we're getting requests for that live version that Sticks just did of I'm the Walrus," and, which was supposed to be a one off. Yeah. So we actually we released it. It got into the top five of the, on the classic rock chart, and it, it did well. And then what you've seen is the one that we did with the Contemporary Youth Orchestra, where we or we did the full the full deal and. Uh, I just love it. I love. I love the whole everything about the song. By the way, I'm I'm going to show you right now. See, we're in Las Vegas at our residency, and what I love here is uh, as you can see, across the street. There you so go. We're in the Venetian. There. I hope you can see that. There. Yeah, we the, can. I can see the love uh, on the mirage. Yep. You can see the. You can see the love. Can yeah. you see the love tonight? <laughs> tonight. <laughs> um, I, I think you know. And Todd and I just went and saw it. I think that's about the eighth or ninth time I've seen it. And uh, sadly, the Mirage is going to be no oh, more. I think right. So we're gonna we're gonna lose that. But yeah, that's uh, that's been a amazing show. Curious that. Yeah, oh. you know that show when with the speakers in the seats. Yeah. Uh, when when they did come together, uh, my wife and I were sitting there, and and Paul's in the back of you, and John's in the front of you, and and I I kept looking back like he was singing at me, and I was. I was like, what is that? And then I realized that, you know, there's like a hundred speakers in the seats, whatever. Uh, you know, we, we, don't, we, we don't, we don't actually call the show love. No, no, we call it Beetle heaven. <laughs> Cause that's what you're describing. It's like, Oh, this is, yeah. You know, I don't know of any experience on earth that, 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 that you know, definitely a musical sense that, that has ever lifted me into the clouds. Like that, like this is, you know, and the, 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 I'll say acrobatics, but it's more like it's artistic interpretation of, you know, it's it's ballet and it's it's acrobatics. I suppose you have to say it, and all of that combining. But the spirit of the music is really elevated in that in that show, and captured yeah. so well. And uh, so I'd highly recommend it, unless you're coming to see Sticks tonight. <laughs> well, I'm sure there's a, the Stick show, and then I think there might be a show of Love before, so. They could do both. Yeah. Why not? A um, couple last things. The, the your favorite album of the Beatles? Absolutely impossible to say. Come on, I, I know to... tomorrow it'll be something. Sergeant Pepper, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. There All right, go. now I did read where your first album ever owned was Revolver. That's correct. I and won you, it. You won it at Simpsons, right? Yeah. I want to. Can yeah. you tell a little just wow. two seconds? I, man, oh man, Mitch, nobody's ever mentioned that ever in an interview. But well, yes, do my I, research. I, my good man. So my my piano teacher called me at about four o'clock. I'd just gotten home from school, and she said they're having a music contest over at Simpsons. Simpsons was a department store like Macy's, okay. Yeah. And um, so she, I said, she said, you, if you go over now, they might let you enter, even though it's already started. And I was like, on my bike, and I ride over there, and I I played. Um, I think I played an original song. I was about, I, I guess I was, so let's think about Revolver, Revolver's uh, 66. So I'm we just 10 or 11? 10 years old, 10, maybe 11 years old. I played an original piece, and I think I played a Beethoven piece. I, I have a little uh, piano rendition of uh, the Fifth Symphony. And uh, so then the audience, uh, they they vote. I, I got there like 10 to 5, so I was one of the one of the last two or three people. And they, they vote on who won, and, and I won it, and they said, 
Uh, you know, so your prize is any album in the store that you want. Well, I was ecstatic, right? Any album I want. The thing is, we didn't have a record player at home. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we listened to the radio and my, you know, and, uh, but I was like, oh God, the, the new album was Revolver. So I go up and I know exactly where it is in the store because I've only picked it up 7,000 times. <laughs> I go up there, Revolver. So can I have this one? Yes, that's your prize. I take it home. I'm the eldest in my family. I got my sister, my two younger brothers. So when I took it home, we have no record player, but my mom kept saying, we're going to get one next next year, being 67. So I took it home and I'm like, okay, you three, you never touch this. Never, ever <laughs> near it. And, you know, just, you can look at it, but that's it. But you can't touch it. You know, it's in the cellophane. So what I did, brilliant 10-year-old that I was, not understanding the, the science behind vinyl, is in the basement, and people in New York would, would know this. So in, in your in your basement, you've got the right. window, but they're up about five feet high, at least five yeah. feet high. And they're, they're usually windows about this deep. Okay, so... The record goes up in the window, right? Ugh. People passing the house can see, yeah, I've got a revolver. But they can look at it, but they can, they're all too tiny to, to touch it. <laughs> Following year, the record player comes into the house. Finally, the big, big old, you know, the big giant console that's got the yeah, radio. Stereo consoles. Can't, can't wait, can't wait, can't wait. And by that time, uh, Hello, Goodbye was on the radio. So <clears throat> comes in the house, I go downstairs, you know, get on the step, get, go up, grab the album, go upstairs, pull the cellophane off, pull the record out. And it is just, it looks like, you know, the way French fries used to look. Where <laughs> it's just a wave. Aww. And I'm looking at it going, I, I hope it works. <laughs> put it on. I put it on. I mean, it literally looks like this. Yeah. You can understand. Right? It's just, oh, it's I've just, had them. It's, it's like that. Okay, and of course the needle goes on. It goes bang, 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 all over the place, and I'm, the disappointment in me is just—I oh. I couldn't believe it. And and I wish I still had it. Actually, you know, and I that would have been a cool item to have and tell your I, story. I have the cover. I kept the cover. Wow, so wow, that's pretty, that's like, pretty cool. This is definitely junk, and uh, <laughs> so I, I was very happy when I finally bought bought another revolver nice did you have you heard now and then the new song i was and remember I'm, when that came out uh, in november yeah i just i'd sit in my hotel room like this and just play along with it like yeah like and, and just noticing Beautiful transition that's in that piece. Anyway, uh, yes, I've heard now and then. <laughs> so I guess you like it. Of course, yeah, of course, of course. I think it's, I think it's, it's, it's fantastic. And um, I, uh, I, you know, just to, to hear John Lennon's voice uh, again. Yeah. I, I had that demo years ago, but to hear again, and this is because I get back the, the technology that Peter Jackson made use of. Uh, is is what allowed this to uh, sure. to, to happen. So uh, yeah, and I love the sentiment of the song. I think it's just of course it's fantastic. Yeah, we were we were privileged enough to be at a, a special Beatle event because we get invited to these things. Uh, I love every opportunity, and we're so grateful for it. But um, they they played it, you know, the, for the first time ever for a bunch of press and oh. journalists. And oh. I got to tell you, the first time John's voice came over, yeah. I, I wept. I'm not kidding. I mean, I've been a Beatles. I'm, I just turned 62 a couple of days ago. At, it, I was two when they came here, but my mother sat me in front of the TV to watch Sullivan. Uh, and then the Beatles cartoons actually got me into the Beatles. But um, when you hear John's voice alone, because they played it isolated, just Peter Jackson's track, I think a lot of us wept in there. And it was so moving, you know, and, and to know that the Beatles are coming out with a new song. That was just wild. Yeah, pretty astounding, isn't it? I mean, and and the way they opened the song with just his voice solo. Yeah, it's yeah. If that if that doesn't grab your heart, yeah, I don't think, I don't think anything will. Hey, so you mentioned the Beatle cartoons. Yeah, I, sure. I, do you remember how? Do you remember how Ringo's laugh used to sound? Of in course, those cartoons? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Of course, <laughs> I actually wrote a book on the Beatle cartoons called Beatle Tunes. Did yeah. I, I actually, you know what? I'll I'll send it to Amanda if you want it. I'll I'll send you a copy. 
Love it. Love to see it. Yeah, and it, you know, it's it's I, again that's how so many people in in America and a, and a bunch of countries got to know the Beatles, uh, and yeah. and a lot of the a lot of the quote, album tracks which uh, were not hits but were used in the cartoons also became popular because of that, because they had to use them because there was nothing else, you know? So, yeah. and, and that's another amazing thing, even though the Beatles themselves didn't have, were not involved in the making of those cartoons and were very peripherally involved in the, yeah. in, in yellow submarine, the spirit of what they conveyed, you, you, you could, you could grab onto that and, yeah. and, and make something that was extremely Beatlesque, so much so that you wouldn't even know the difference, almost, right. uh, which is quite remarkable. And that's the personality. I remember hearing that George Harrison said that he felt that whatever that spirit was that was in the Beatles, he felt that that got transferred to the to the troop of Monty Python in the seventies, yeah. which is why he was so supportive with handmade films and uh, of the Pythons was because they had that 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 spirit that existed in the in in when they were a group had transferred, had somehow moved into the Python world. I saw this week that they did the, change the subject ever so slightly, but at, at uh, London Bridge, I believe, or Tower Bridge, they've put this 15 meter or 50 foot long uh, dead parrot. <laughs> oh, I, I, I love the Pythons. You're, that's, you know, the thing, that's, a, that's the kind of thing I think George Harrison probably would have paid for. Oh, he would have probably, yeah, he, he loved that. Well, you know, they were the, they were the Beatles of comedy. Um, and it, yeah. it's, it's amazing. Yeah, and and right. even the Ruddles, I mean, you know, we're still a product of Eric Idle and uh, I love the Ruddles. Uh, I can't get over that. Uh, I know you know what you are. <laughs> you know by now that you're not me. <laughs> I mean, wow. how, how could you possibly parody I'm the walrus any better than that, you know? So, uh, Piggy in the middle, yeah. I mean, it, and Neil Innes was just a, a sweetheart of a guy. Well, Neil Innes was such a phenomenal musician, and yeah. I, I read only recently how he wrote those songs for the Ruddles. For and and amazing that what he did, uh, according to this interview, was he, he when he was given the assignment, he decided I didn't listen to any Beatle records, he decided mm -hmm. I'm not going to listen because if I do, I'll be so. The essence of what's in the songs, he was able to parody to that level. That's amazing, though, isn't it? I mean, and and the just the the comedy itself, the humor in the Ruddles was just brilliant. So yeah. So you guys yeah. are you guys are on tour always. I mean, every you know, it seems like you guys never stop. Yeah. And I'm sure your families probably tell you that. Um, yeah. So I I have to ask this, and I'm probably not the first person to ever ask it, so I'm not going to take credit. But you know. The Stones have been on tour 10 times since you joined 25 years ago. Okay. Was there ever, ever any talk of you guys opening for the Stones and having a Sticks and Stones tour? Uh, there's never been any talk, but man, I'd love, I'd love if that, if that ever arose. I've, I've uh. seen 10 times they've toured. I think I've seen them three of those times, three of those times, because they're in the 90s as well. Yeah. And, um, you know, here's the thing, though. Any, I've seen great acts open for the Rolling Stones. That's not an enviable position to be oh, I in. Know. I mean, I'd do it. I'd do it. But I, I won't even name some of the worldwide huge acts that have opened for the Stones and been more or less, it's not a good audience to play for. They're waiting for the, they're waiting for the royalty to arrive. You know, that's really it. Yeah, uh, but I, you guys, I mean, you know, Let's face it. Oh yeah. Oh no, we could do it and be yeah. incredibly successful. No yeah. question. Yeah. Listen, no question. I would do it just to buy the shirt. <laughs> problem, the problem is, I'd be up to stay. I'd be up there going like, "This is really going great. I can't wait to see the Rolling Stones." <laughs> <laughs> so where can and, we, where can we find out, you know, about your, uh, your, your website or the Sticks website? You know, we if yeah. people want to go see you guys on tour, hear about sure. you or whatever. Yeah. So for sticks, you just go to sticksworld.com. Sticksworld.com. Is it like one word? Sticksworld.com. Yep. Then you can go to all of the social media, Facebooks and Instagrams and TikToks or whatever the hell. And uh, those are vital, you know, uh, conduits. And for myself, I have uh, my the verified account because there are a lot of uh, imposters. But the verified account is just Gowan. If you uh, if you're on Instagram, you see the, the blue check beside it. Yep. Or uh, on Facebook, there's a Lawrence Gowan site, and then there's a Gowan site, G-O-W-A-N, and then you can find what, what I'm up to as well. Sounds good. I'm I'm, I'm going to ask you to just stick around after we end for an ID, but 
I, I got to yep. tell you, we've never we've never had someone on that was so uh, versed on the Beatles like you are. Uh-huh. I mean, like I said, I you, when I said in the beginning that you are a geek, I, I meant that in the nicest way because I'm, oh, that's fine. I'm the biggest geek. Because uh, you know, the geek shall inherit the earth. <laughs> Very good. On that note, uh, I, I really want to thank you, Lawrence. This has been a, a, a blast. We appreciate the time. Um, and, you know, I, I hope uh, I hope everybody goes out and sees you guys um, because, I mean, they don't need the publicity from me because you guys sell out everywhere. Uh, but locally in our backyard, I, I can't wait to see you in March. Uh, maybe I can even get to say hi. And, uh, again, sticksworld.com and Gowan. And uh, this has really been such a blast. We appreciate it very much. Great to chat with you, Mitch. It's a, it's a subject that I could we can discuss anytime, even if we're not not in a Zoom call, because I uh, <laughs> there's just there's, there's just an endless you know fascination with with the Beatles and 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 the influence that they've had on, on music and every single band that ever came afterwards. So wonderful to do this, and uh, so let's move on to your IDs. Thanks, All right, let me for- just end the show. And so for Fab Four Free For All, this has been your host, uh, Mitch Axelrod. And joining me uh, has been Lawrence Gowan. We appreciate you so much. And uh, we will see you all next time. Fab Four Free For All was edited and produced by Tony Triguardo at Word of Mouth Studios in Westbury, New York. The opening and closing theme is My Dolly by the band The Badge, featuring longtime listener Jeff Slate, available on its debut album, Digital Retro, and recent Best Of compilation, as well as from the Fab Four Free-For-All website. Thanks for listening to Fab Four Free-For-All.